If you will, turn with me in your Bible to uh, Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. And then, keep your finger there, and turn to Romans chapter 4. Proverbs 17 and Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to read these two passages of Scripture and hopefully create a dilemma in your mind, and then we will uh, we'll try to make sense of that dilemma as we study the Word. So Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Now Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now I hope you understand that him who justifies the ungodly is God. That's that's what he's saying. So in Proverbs, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. In Romans... He who justifies the ungodly is God Himself. This is God's Word. Both passages. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us to understand Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would not set aside our belief in the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of Scripture the divine inspiration of all of Scripture, that we would not set aside all of Your perfect and holy rules of logic and consistency, but Lord, You would show us from Your Word that You are perfectly righteous and and, and just and holy and good and kind and faithful and merciful, and that none of these attributes must bow to the other, so that you can redeem sinful men. Help us to see that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. How would you answer, don't answer out loud, just think in your mind, how would you answer if I asked you or if someone else came up to you and asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian. How would you answer if someone said, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? Would you answer possibly, well, it means that you've been born again. Or maybe you would say that it means that you are a child of God. What would your answer be? What if I asked you, what would you say is the chief reward of salvation or the chief reward of being a Christian. 
Perhaps knowing your sinfulness, you would say, well, the chief reward is forgiveness. Or perhaps knowing that because of sin, death has come to all men because all sin. And you would say, well, the, the chief reward of salvation to me is eternal life. I don't have to fear death. Or perhaps you would say that the chief reward is justification, that God sees me as righteous. Think about it. What would your answer be to those questions? What does it mean? What is the chief reward of salvation? In the weeks to come, we're going to study some of the effects of our union with Christ. These effects or products or fruit of our union, all of them are absolutely central to our doctrine of salvation. All of them that we study. But... As we lead into this and as we study these things, we need to make sure that we always remember that which is the central tenet of our salvation. The foundation for all of the Christian message, which is union with Christ. As we study the effects, we can't remember that they are effects. If we become obsessed with or exalt one of the effects above that which is the foundation or the root of all of the effects, then we begin to have a, an unbalanced view of salvation. We need to understand that the effects flow out of something bigger. They are caused by something more central, namely union with Christ. And so if we exalt one of the effects above our union with Christ, what's going to happen eventually is Christ will become lesser in our view of salvation. Christ will cease to be the centerpiece of all of our salvation. Now, I want to read to you a few quotes as I have done um, in weeks past. John Owen says that union with Christ is, quote, the principle and measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. A.W. Pink says union with Christ is the foundation of all spiritual blessings. Jonathan Edwards says the relation or union to Christ whereby Christians are said to be in Christ is the ground of their right to His benefits. And Thomas Boston, another Puritan, said to be united to Christ is the foundation of of all happiness and of the richest privileges. And here's a longer one from John Murray, which I've quoted many times, and I would uh, recommend to anybody to read this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. But he says, Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject. It embraces the wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God, which we've seen, to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect which we will see. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption, both in its accomplishment and in its application. Union with Christ binds all together and ensures that to all for whom Christ has purchased redemption, He effectively applies and communicates the same. Now the reason I've, I've compounded these quotes is, is I want to say in multiple ways, and I want you to hear from multiple authors this truth, that union with Christ is central and that 
out of union with Christ flows everything that we generally consider to be salvation or its various parts of salvation. And it is that outflow that we're taking up as our subject for the next few weeks. We're going to look at the primary themes of salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, and we're going to see how they flow out of union with Christ, union with Christ being the foundation. So, that by way of introduction to the introduction, we will move into the introduction. Today, we're beginning with what is probably considered the chiefest of the blessings that we receive after we've been joined to Christ. After receiving Christ Himself, this is probably the chiefest or supreme of, of the blessings. Now, I'd like to think that it is no accident that today, on the eve of the 499th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous nailing of his 95 theses to the door there in Wittenberg, Germany, in contrast or to protest the teachings of the Church of Rome, we come to the doctrine that Luther called, and I quote, the article of a standing or falling church. In other words, this doctrine, if a church holds to this doctrine, that church will stand. And any group, any uh, collection of people who does not hold this doctrine, does not hold up this doctrine and believe this doctrine is merely a cheap imitation of the church of Christ. And Luther, when he discovered the truth of this doctrine, this was when he says he was born again. He says when he discovered this, quote, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Now today we're going to talk about the doctrine of justification. Now in order to get to justification from where we have been, we need to be reminded of a few things. First, we studied the process of this union for the past three weeks. We saw that in eternity past, God, out of compassion for His Son, made a covenant with His Son, then chose a people in union with His Son, and then charged His Son to go retrieve that people. Compassion, covenant, chose, charge. Four C's will help you remember that process in eternity. And then we looked at the redemptive historical aspect of our union. Namely, after the Son has been charged, at the appointed time, He comes into human history. He's incarnate as a man. He lives a perfect life in our place. He dies on the cross in our place. He is resurrected. He raises Himself from the dead in our place. He ascends to the right hand of the Father in our place. All of these things with us in union with Him so that we receive His life. We receive His death. We receive His resurrection. We receive His ascension. That's redemptive history. And then we saw last week the third phase, which we call the experiential phase. That is, this is a union with Christ in our personal experience. And in that phase, we saw first... We come along on the scene, whether we're 5 years old or 10 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old, at some point, the gospel is preached or the gospel comes to us. We read it, we hear it, we receive it, and through the preaching of the gospel, by the Word and Spirit, God the Father gives us 
the effectual call to salvation. God the Father, in essence, says, Sinner, come forth. And when we hear that word sinner, we've already received that which He has called. We've already come forth. And then out of that, or in, right in, in um, connection with that, we talked about regeneration. That coming to life is a work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us by connecting us like a power cord to the outlet. He connects us to Christ and we get life. We receive spiritual life. We're born again, born from above, born of heaven, born of the Spirit. And then out of that new life and the new understanding we receive from that new life, we the creature then respond by turning away from sin and turning to Christ. And we call that conversion. That's our job. That's what we do. We convert. Conversion is a twofold act. Again, repentance. We, our heart is changed. We change our heart and mind. And, and again, repentance and faith in Scripture are both given the a description as gifts from God. All of this is a work of God. But this is that synergistic work. We must repent. We must believe God Himself giving us the faith and the ability to turn. He grants us repentance. So that which used to be, when we repent, that which used to be thrilling or exciting or whatever, it was just the... The path of least resistance, we just went with the crowd. Now that becomes that which you abhor. You hate that. Sin bothers you. You're regularly repulsed by your sinful ways. When you begin to drift with the crowd, drift with the world, you, you want to stop yourself. You dig in your heels because you don't want to be like that. Because you've repented of that. You've turned. And you're regularly turning. And then there's also faith. And this is important for today. Faith is acting upon what you now see to be true through the illumination of the Spirit and regeneration. So we, we come to life, we're able to see the holiness of God, we're able to see our sinfulness, we see I am in need of a perfect, righteous Savior. I look, I see Christ as the perfect, righteous Savior. And faith is, if you can picture... Um, monkey bars. So you're holding on to one bar. That's self-righteousness. Faith is when you release from self-righteousness and you cling to Christ. You jump off and you let go of Him. You let, or you let go from yourself and you cling to Him. It is the grasp of, of holding on to Christ alone for salvation. If that's a good word picture. And I said in describing that last week that faith, as it were, closes the deal in our union. So if you've ever purchased a house, or that's um, a good example. If you've ever purchased a house, you go to the mortgage company, the time comes to sign all the paperwork. All of the work has been done. They actually have your name printed on most of the papers, your address, your information. It's all printed there, but it's not official until you sign. You sign your signature, and that closes the deal. That's how faith works. God has chosen us. He's put us in union with His Son in eternity. The Son has come and accomplished all of the work in our place objectively. It's all done. And then He gives us the ability to sign, to close that deal. Faith takes hold of Christ. It apprehends Christ. So we're, we're holding on to Jesus now. Faith makes 
actual and subjective, that means real in us, that which was established in eternity, that which was objective. Faith brings into actual experiential union that which was objective. It brings us into communion with Christ. Ephesians 3.17 says, Paul was praying for the church there, and he says, he prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So faith is what we do to seal the deal. This is important. It is through faith that we apprehend Christ and take hold of Him who has taken hold of us. Now, in addition to those truths, consider what we also learned about our nature, or the nature of our union with Christ. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, that is me and the Father, will come to him and make our home with him. Remember that chapter. There were three unions. There was the union of the Father and the Son, then there was the union of the Spirit and the believer. And then there was the union of the Father and the Son and the believer through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. you remember that? Spirit comes in because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God the Father. When the Spirit comes in, the Father and the Son also come into this union. In other words, and here's, here's how we're connecting the dots. When we, by faith, cling to Christ... And He, by means of His Holy Spirit, then comes in and makes His dwelling within us. We come into close, intimate communion with all three members of the Godhead. We fellowship with them, with the Father, through the Spirit, by the blood of the, of the Son. We come into this communion. Now that is a truth that is almost incomprehensible. As a matter of fact, I know it is, because when I say it, you're not all saying, no, there's no way. It's not possible. It's incomprehensible. It is good news. I'll state it this way. Experiential union brings us, fallen sinners, into communion with the holy and righteous God of all creation. But with that brings a problem. And here's the problem. Experiential union brings fallen sinners into communion with the holy and righteous God of all creation. The good news is that this union brings us into communion with God. The bad news is this union brings us into communion with God. Now why is that a problem? Well, let me read a passage of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 34, we read this. We should all know this very well. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, and here's His name, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Here's the problem. God 
will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. Some would say, oh yeah, but the cross. He will by no means clear the guilty. He simply cannot clear the guilty. It would contradict His character as a perfect and righteous judge to clear the guilty by any means. Sin, as we've said, sin, because it is a transgression of God's law, and God's law is a perfect map of His holy character, then when we sin, we are trampling God's holy character, and He cannot clear the guilty. We are the guilty. That's us. Objectively, in Adam, through our human generation, we all receive the guilt of Adam's sin. And then subjectively or actually, in your daily life, you fail to live up to God's standard. We could summarize all of God's law, and, and Jesus does this, by just loving God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. That is, all of your affection, all of your emotions, all of your thoughts given to God and God alone as the supreme object of your worship every moment of every day. That is, while you work, while you love your wife, while you raise your children, in all of that, the whole time, your mind is supremely taken up with the worship of God, and as you do these things, doing them out of perfect, holy reverence for God. And also... While you're doing all of that, you must also love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Just two commandments. We're guilty. We are those who are guilty. And God will by no means clear the guilty. Now, do you see the dilemma, the problem? Now, there's not a problem on God's part. You see, God's not biting His fingernails thinking, how, how can I save these people or how can I redeem sinners in such a way that will not go against my character? See, He's in no dilemma whatsoever. His wrath has always burned hot, burned hot against anything that is in opposition to His character. Just consider God's history with sin. Adam sinned once. All of humanity plunged into sin. Cain brought vegetables. God said, I won't have it. God sent a flood, wiped out everything on the earth. Nadab and Abihu worshipped in a way that God had not commanded. He burned them alive in front of their father. Uzzah tried to steady the ark of the covenant, and he dropped dead. In Isaiah chapter 10, Assyria does to Israel what God made them do, and then God punishes them for doing it. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira told a lie, and they dropped dead in church. See, the problem is God is holy. God is, not was, is a consuming fire. God is, not was, is of purer eyes than to behold evil. It cannot come into His benevolent presence. Now we say God's everywhere. We're always in His presence. Yes, that's the scary thing. Benevolent presence is what we cannot have in our sin. 
Now, somebody might respond, well, people all over the world sin every day, and God doesn't do anything. So apparently he's changed a little. You know, in the past, in the Old Testament, he would, he would kill these other nations and he would send Israel to destroy these nations. Men, women, children, animals, kill them all. But nowadays, there is no nation that worships God and he just lets it go. Maybe he's changed. The problem with that is that the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in the fact that He just lets it go. As He turns men over into their sin, that is His wrath. So that on the day of judgment, throughout their entire lives, they would have heaped upon themselves condemnation on top of condemnation so that when they stand before Him... They, they might say, well, you didn't say I couldn't do this. Or you, you didn't stop me. And, and he'll say, you're right, I didn't. And now you'll be judged for all of your sin. God does not and will not make light of sin. He will not, cannot, may not, and I say that reverently, clear the guilty. His character has bound him. And he cannot clear the guilty. So, by faith, the guilty are brought into actual, close, intimate, real, experiential communion with the one who can have no dealings with the guilty and and must, by the demand of his own character, crush them in his presence. Our faith brings us in and we should expect nothing more than to be crushed as soon as we come into his presence. And if this is so, again, who can stand? If the Lord should mark iniquities, who can stand? The answer is none of us. Now, you might respond. But we've been regenerated. We've been given new hearts. We're new creatures now. Well, see, that is true. But the problem is regeneration doesn't deal with former sins. It doesn't change the fact that you are still guilty in Adam and still guilty of every sin you've ever committed. You're still a sinner. You might say, but there's, there's forgiveness. We read it in the psalm. With you there is forgiveness. There's, there's grace. Perhaps we need to revisit God's own self-disclosure of Himself one more time. He will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. There is no way... No method, no medium through which God will work to clear you who are guilty of so many countless transgressions against His holy character. Are you beginning to see the problem? How is it that a holy, righteous, just unchanging, never-wavering God who eternally burns with white-hot hatred for sin and all evildoers, how can He have fellowship with us who by our human nature are an offense to Him, who by our very actions on a daily basis scorn His perfect character by despising, rejecting, and opposing His perfect law? How can He forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty? Well, the answer is found in the doctrine of justification. 
I hope you can see why this is the article of a standing or falling church. If you don't hold to this doctrine, you've got nothing. You're standing with Rome hoping that your righteousness will make you right before a holy God. So the doctrine defined very simply, justification in a simple and general sense is the judicial act of pronouncing the verdict not guilty or better yet, righteous. Justification is God saying righteous. Now, I want to explain some terminology. On the screen you will see two English words. Justification and righteousness. Now, they look very different in English in the way we write. Those two words don't... When we look at those words, we can't see anything in the the structure of those words that would lead us to believe that they might have similar definitions or that they might have similar root or that they might have a common meaning. But now look at these two words in Greek. Now even if you can't read those words, you can see some similarity. Can you see it? Now let's put that into an English transliteration of those words. Now, can you see that justification, the root of the word justification, and the root of the word righteousness are very similar in Greek? Even in English, they sound different, they're spelled different, but in Greek, they have very similar meanings. Now, the point of that exercise was, of course, to show you how smart I am, and that I can put... No, that's not the point. The point was this. To justify, or justification, or the word justified, all come from the same root. Justification, dikaio, means to pronounce righteous. That's the second word. Righteousness, dikaios, means God's goodness. The standard of God's perfection, that's righteousness. And the root of these words are very similar. So... When you study the Bible, and we'll see a lot of passages today that use these words almost interchangeably, they're back and forth. Even though they look very different in English, we need to make sure we have the proper association of them in our minds. Because they are related in uh, Scripture very closely, we have to pay attention. And we cannot understand the doctrine of justification if we don't see the relationship between justification and righteousness. So to justify is to pronounce, declare something or someone as being righteous. Now think of a judge in a courtroom. He does not make the innocent innocent. He does not make the guilty guilty. He receives a slip of paper from the jury. He opens it up. The jury finds you innocent, or the jury finds you guilty. The judge only makes known that which has already been determined to be true. He simply says it where everybody can hear it. He declares it. So by implication, this idea of justification is forensic. It's judicial. It has to do with God declaring a verdict. So we're using the language of a court. Justification is the act of pronouncing or declaring someone righteous. Now let's go through a couple questions. Who is the judge in this courtroom? Who is the one who makes the pronunciation? Or in other words, biblically speaking, who is it that justifies? Romans 8, 33 
says it is God who justifies. God justifies. The infinitely holy and righteous God in whose nostrils you are a stench and an aggravation is the one who has the responsibility of declaring one righteous or unrighteous. Again, we're not saying that God makes you righteous because you're not. He declares you righteous. Another question. Who then is justified? Who is it that God declares to be righteous? Maybe it's those who live a righteous life. That would make sense, right? You've lived a righteous life? Well, then I declare you righteous. Good job. Congratulations. Perhaps it's those who measure up to God's standard of holiness, who obey His law. That would make sense. You've obeyed. You're righteous. God says righteous. These groups would show themselves to be righteous and therefore, God would be happy to say, righteous. But consider a few texts of Scripture. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified or declared righteous. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as His due. He earned it. He worked. He got what He earned. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, the end of verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Romans chapter 4 again, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that, we, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 16 of the same chapter, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, that is Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Same chapter, verse 22. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Again, the question... Who does God declare righteous? Who does He justify? Well, the answer from Scripture, those who have faith in Jesus. God justifies those who have faith. But we come right back to our problem. How can that justifier, God, holy and righteous, declare to be righteous 
These sinners, we sinners, who are clearly not righteous and still be honest and truthful. How can that happen? How can the judge pronounce a righteous verdict over those who are guilty and not be considered a fraud? Now some would say, grace. It's just grace, man. You don't question grace, it's just grace. Romans 3.24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's just grace, man. That's true. God is gracious. But God's grace cannot overturn or outweigh any of His other attributes. He's not more gracious than He is just. So we still have the same problem. How can a holy and righteous and gracious God declare to be righteous those we who are not righteous? Again, we might say, well, He forgives us of our sin. That's true. He does forgive us of our sin, but that does not make us righteous. Righteousness is God's goodness. It is God's perfection. So even in being forgiven of all of our sin, well, that merely just brings us up to neutral. That just brings us up to forgiven sinners. That doesn't make us righteous. That does not give us God's goodness. We're just forgiven. Being forgiven does not erase the reality of your sin. Being forgiven does not release you from the penalty of your sin. It does not make you righteous. So how can God say you are righteous? How can He justify you? How can He declare you to be a possessor of His own goodness when in fact your life, past, present, and future, is riddled with sin? How can He do that? Well, then we need to, we need to backpedal a little bit. Who again does Scripture say is justified? It's those who have faith. Those who believe. You have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, faith is not considered a work that God looks at and then He judges that faith and counts your faith as your righteousness. And sometimes when we read in, in our English uh, readings of the Bible, Abraham believed in it and it was counted to him as righteousness. We might say, oh, faith is something we do that God looks at and sort of plasters that over all of his law so that our work of faith counts as our righteousness. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are justified through faith. We're justified on or we're not justified on account of our faith. It is through faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the conduit. Remember, faith is how we reach out and take hold of Christ. So the question again, why is faith the conduit through which God pronounces me righteous? Why is faith the conduit through which God justifies the sinner. Remember last week, what else did we say faith does? Faith closes the deal of actual union with Christ. So at the very moment of saving faith, our 
eternal union is sealed and consummated. It's real. It is actual. Having been joined to Christ in real, actual union, what do we get? We get Christ. We get Him. The chiefest of all of the the goodness of God is that in union we get Jesus. Union with Christ is the foundation. And having received the whole Christ, we receive all of His inherent communicable features as well as His achievements. We get that. So what have we seen are some of His achievements. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter got that from Isaiah 53, 9. He, done, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was and is without sin. But it's not as though He just didn't commit any sins during His earthly life. It's not as though Jesus just exercised super extreme great restraint. It's not as though Jesus just worked really hard to avoid situations where there would be temptation. It's not as though Jesus just had to keep away from people who would be a bad influence upon Him. No, Christ, being God, had no sin. He had no contamination. He was not of Adam's race. He had no, has no, sinful inclination. He didn't have a need for restraint. He didn't have to avoid temptation. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face off with the devil. He didn't have to avoid tempting uh, tempting people. He ate and drank with sinners and was never in the least bit inclined or pressured to partake of their sin. In Him, there is no sin. Or as the writer of the Hebrews says, He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Although He did take upon Him our flesh, He remained separated from us in our sin. Therefore, Jesus is not just good. Jesus possesses God's goodness because He is God. In other words, Jesus is righteous. So what does the Scripture say concerning Christ, His righteousness, and our union with Him? Through faith, we we take hold of Christ. We come into actual union with Christ. We receive the whole Christ. Christ possesses God's goodness. How does all of this relate? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31 says, Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of God, 
the Father, you are in Christ. You've been united to Christ. It was God's doing. Through the bond of the Holy Spirit, Christ comes into us, He abides in us, and we in Him. And through this bond, we have received Christ in all of His fullness. Christ becomes then, Christ becomes to us, Paul says, righteousness. Christ becomes to us righteousness. Not that we can say, oh, well, I see Christ as righteous. No, He becomes to us righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. He is righteous. We're united to Him. We get Him. Therefore, we get His righteousness imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's two parts to that verse. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, without sin, He was made sin. He was regarded as sin. And we who do no sin, we who are the sinners, we become the righteousness of God of God. How does that happen? Paul tells us, in Him, in Christ, in union with Christ, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. Having been united to Christ in eternity, the work of Christ on the cross was in union with us. Therefore, our sin was imputed to Him on the cross. Having been united to Him by faith in time, we take hold of Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. Now that brings us back to the doctrine of justification. Now that we've been joined to Christ and by faith have attained Christ, and through faith have received the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the time then comes for God, the judge, to pronounce His verdict in our case. And because we're now in Christ, Christ stands as our federal head, and because we have received in ourselves the imputed righteousness of Christ, not only may God declare us righteous, He must, because He is just, He must declare us righteous in Christ. Not forgiven, that's true. Not tolerable. He, we don't get a pass. God does not make a concession in our sake. He declares us righteous. He justifies us on account of the righteousness of His Son that we receive through the conduit of faith. And having received in ourselves that declaration, righteous, we may then come humbly, gratefully, boldly into the presence of this holy and righteous God and commune with Him even though in reality we are still sinners. The holy God welcomes us into His presence having declared us righteous. That is the doctrine of justification and it flows out of our union with Christ. So in light of that, I have six points of application or implication. Six things that we need to understand about this doctrine, things that will come out of this doctrine. First, in holding to this doctrine, we do not therefore teach that God in some way overlooks sin. 
Some people who profess to be Christians, again, will, will claim 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Let's say in justification, God decides not to count sins against His people. He counts us righteous. He just decides to. Or if they're unbelievers or scoffers, they may have a little bit of understanding of Scripture. They will say, so you're telling me that God is angry with all of humanity, but just because you believe, God just says, well, I'll forgive you. And everybody else who doesn't believe, just like you, well, I'm going to kill them forever. But you just believe and you get a pass. No, that's not what we teach. We do not teach a, an illogical confrontation of the attributes of God where one must be laid aside so that the other can be exalted. The scandal of the cross and our salvation is not that God bypassed His own judgment and overlooked sin and then pardoned sinners. The scandal of the cross and our salvation is that He did not count our trespasses against us, but He did count them against His own Son as He hung Him on the cross. He placed them on another. He crushed another. And it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. God no more overlooks our sin than He overlooks the perfect obedience of His Son. That would make Him a moral monster. That would make Him an unjust judge. And so we do not believe in a God who would do those things. People say, well, how can you believe in a God who just forgives people just because they believe? We don't believe in that God. We believe in the God who hung His Son on the cross and then joined sinners to His Son. So God most certainly punished every sin of every one of His people in Christ. And God most certainly rewards the perfect obedience of His Son first in us through faith. We receive that reward. And secondly, by giving to Christ the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So He does not overlook sin. And we do not believe that God overlooks sin. Secondly, as we'll see in the weeks to come, justification is not a standalone doctrine. Justification is not a standalone doctrine. Now, some, and here I'll explain what I mean. Some confuse justification and sanctification. And so they will say, that we are declared righteous apart from our works, objectively, on account of Christ's righteousness, through faith, which is all true. So, the deeds that we commit in the flesh really have no bearing whatsoever on our relationship with God. They don't matter. It's objective. It's outside of us. We can live however we want to because we've been declared righteous in Christ. Or they may, they may not say we can live however we want to, but they would say there's really not a very strict moral uh, requirement that God would call His people to. God doesn't call His people for holy, to holiness. This is false. The truth is we are justified through faith. Faith proceeds from a regenerate heart. Regeneration is the work of God the Holy Spirit. And that same regeneration that produces faith also produces repentance. They're inseparable. You can't 
take away repentance from faith. Therefore, for any to claim to have been justified through faith, and yet in their life they show no repentance, their life is not characterized by repentance, that is a regular turning away from sin and sinfulness to godliness, any claim on behalf of such a person falls on its face. You don't get faith and not repentance. True saving faith is never separated from true Holy Spirit wrought repentance. If you are okay to live in sin, you're not justified. And you can say all day long, well, we're not justified by works of the law. You're right. But the faith by which we are justified by God is always a faith that will in turn justify itself before men. And that is James' argument. Because it will produce works of righteousness. Justification and sanctification are separate. But they are never isolated from one another. So you can't just say, well, I believe and therefore I'm justified and that's it. You get all or you get nothing. It's not a standalone doctrine. Thirdly, faith, we've said this, faith is not a work. Christ's obedience is the only sufficient work. So, must we have faith in order to be saved? Yes, you must believe. Now some might say, so what you're saying is, I execute my faith in order to be justified, therefore I'm justified by something I did. I'm justified by work. False. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 makes very clear, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What are the odds that that second one man is you? Not very good. That second one man is Jesus. It is by one man's obedience, his obedience. So in a sense, you could say, I'm justified by works, just not mine, because I don't have any to offer. We're justified by the works of another, the obedience of another. Adam disobeyed, and all who were in him received the punishment of his disobedience. Christ obeyed, and all who were united to him received the reward of his obedience. Saving faith, then, is not a work. It is the antithesis of work. It is non-work. It's like saying, when you get home from work and you lay down on the couch and your wife would come and say, why are you working? I mean, I see you laying on that couch. You're laying, aren't you? You're not doing anything. You're just letting the couch hold you up. You're tired of working. That's faith. It is non-work. The very essence of saving faith is the refusal to work but rather to look to the works of another, namely Christ. So faith is not a work. Number four, saving faith, and these are all sort of connected, you can see, saving faith must come empty-handed. When you come to Christ, when you're swinging on those monkey bars, you've got to let go of the one before you reach out and take the other. You must let go of any and all righteousness of your own if you are to cling to Christ. Saving faith must come empty-handed. Remember, regeneration produces in a person the ability 
to understand savingly the things of God. And those things of God include your miserable condition as a sinner, your inability to affect any change, your spiritual bankruptcy. When you're regenerated, you see all of that. And in Romans 5, this is a lengthy passage, but I want you to just see how hard Paul tries to make this point. Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, the very essence and definition of grace is that it is a free gift. Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. The righteousness that we receive is a free gift. It's a gift of grace. And if at any point we begin to think that our standing before God is something we can earn, or that we must then bring something to the table in order to be justified, we nullify the grace of God. We've made God's standard appear to be something that is attainable by men. Oh, I could do that. Just obey the law. I've got that. Let me Here, God, I brought this to you. This is my fourth commandment of obedience today. This is my seventh commandment. I didn't kill anybody, God. I'll add this into my collection. True saving faith, that faith by which we are justified, must come acknowledging poverty of spirit and bringing nothing but empty hands to hold on to Christ. It takes both hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We bring nothing. William Mason says we can add nothing to Christ's work. To attempt to do anything towards your own justification before God is the basest act of unbelief. To try to earn your righteousness is to show you don't believe. You don't have faith. Fifthly, Justification is all of grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's all of grace. Rome teaches that through participation in the sacraments and then afterwards continuing to be faithful in good deeds, God imparts, not imputes, imparts or infuses the righteousness not only of Christ but of dead saints and Christ into the heart and life of a believer. And so when you maintain 
your, your uh, observance of the sacraments, and you live an obedient life, and then your life is consummated by someone uh, worthy enough to pronounce the last rites on you, when all of that comes together properly, then you will go to heaven. If not, if there's not enough infused righteousness, then that person will just have to go to purgatory and continue to work on that process of becoming righteous enough to enter heaven. That is the damnable heresy of a false church. That teaching is anti-Christ. We are justified by God's grace as a gift. We are justified by Christ's righteousness outside of us. Some would call it an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It comes and is imputed to us. Again, by works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. Justification is all of grace. There's no process involved. The very moment you reach out in saving faith and trust Christ, God declares you righteous. And if you are a believer, you are no less righteous now than you will be in a million years in the presence of God. And after a million years in the presence of God, you will be no more righteous in God's sight than you are right now at the moment of saving faith in Christ. It's all of grace. Many evangelicals, evangelicals would say, we're too hard on our, quote, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. Al Mohler says there are millions of born-again Roman Catholics. Let me read to you a couple canons from the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church, produced in the 16th century, never recounted, recanted. Canon 9, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Canon 12, If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, and that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. They say we're being too hard. That harlot church says that if we believe what I've taught you today, we can go to hell. We're damned. We're cut off from Christ. The Scriptures alone, which are our sole infallible rule of faith and practice and doctrine, teach us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It is all of grace. Number six, the doctrine of justification proves that Christ is all. Christ obeyed the Father. Christ secured our redemption. Christ sent His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Christ regenerated us. The Holy Spirit of Christ gives us faith in Christ. God declares us righteous by giving us the, or imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. It is only because we have been united to Christ 
that we are declared righteous. It's all of Christ so that in all things He might be preeminent. And anybody who teaches that, well, there's a little more required. You're going to have to do a little bit more than Christ's righteousness. They are antichrist. They are opposed to Christ. May that church crumble. So, as we come to the Lord's table, we consider these things. The questions are always the same. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you taken hold of Him by faith? On real life monkey bars, you're usually holding on to two bars. When it comes to faith in Christ, you have got to let go of anything else you might be clinging to, and you must hold to Christ and Christ alone. Have you thrown yourself at the mercy of the court of heaven, saying, I've got nothing but the righteousness of Christ? Examine yourselves to see if these things are true. If they are, if you have believed, then Christ says, come and let's eat. Partake of this bread and this juice. Receive my grace through this means. But if not, then I have to ask, what's stopping you? Can you not see that your sin has defiled you? That Can you not see that even the very best you can offer is soiled with sin before a holy and righteous God? Can you not see Christ is our only hope? And I would say, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So as the elements are distributed, let each of us examine ourselves.